I'll be reading from Daniel, starting in the first chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, today we start a journey through, and I may be a little bit biased, one of the most important books in the Bible for understanding the significance of Jesus' ministry. Uh, I hope for a few of you at least that is exciting. Um, Please think of my poor wife who is now no longer even safe on Sundays from hearing me talk about Daniel. Uh, One of the most read books in the time of Jesus, and so also the lens by which many of his followers were understanding his ministry. Jesus intentionally invokes the book on a number of occasions, not least by the uh, use of the title Son of Man. It seems strange to me then that in our churches, we actually spend very little time looking closely at this book as a whole with the focus often being on the specific actions of Daniel and his companions in the first half of the book, with very little time being put into understanding what the 12 chapters are saying to us as a whole. Uh, The second half of the book is complex to preach, and I can understand the hesitancy of many preachers to approach it, um, because it is a genre that is complex and has an intentional literary style and is speaking into a historical context. And so for us to do this really well, uh, often we bring a lot of baggage with us around the book of Daniel. I'm sure a lot of you have heard many parts of it before, maybe even just in Sunday school. Uh, But I'm going to need you to try and throw away as much as you can out of your head uh, as try and approach this book fresh look at it anew as if we're exploring it for the first time. The fact is that while this book is written uh, with stories full of from the 6th century BC, uh, the main audience, the first people that we know were reading this book uh, were under the Antiochian persecution of the 2nd century BC. Antiochus IV was a great Seleucid king who in 165 BC carried out a harsh persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem. He executed many, he degraded their worship, and he even sacrificed a pig on the altar to the god Zeus. This was a time when many cried out to God not knowing where he is and being tempted to assimilate into a pagan faith in order to protect their lives. This context stands behind all that we will read over the next month. My aim over the next four weeks, though, is to introduce you to the first part of the book of Daniel and how I understand it to function within the whole book. Then, on Rivendell, I'm going to preach through the visions of chapters 7 to 12 to hopefully equip us to engage with this type of literature and more importantly, give us access to the incredible truth that this book holds for Christians. Sound good? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that as we consider it, we we rejoice that words written hundreds and thousands of years ago can be so relevant for us today. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would help us to learn to trust you, to rely on you, Uh, and to give you the credit due that you deserve. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm doing things for people, I can get quite frustrated when I don't know who's in charge. 
uh, whose instructions I'm supposed to be following. A uh, case when this happened to me when I was first at uh, church as a teenager, um, we were getting ready for a carol, carol season that was coming up. I was relatively new to church, so I didn't realize that some stuff around carols can be pretty important to people at times. Uh, and so we were setting up the hall for a service, uh, and the minister came in and kind of gave us some directions. The rector, he said, you've got to put the drum kit over here uh, and some of the decorations over here, set it up like this, and then it will work this way and it'll be great. And we're like, awesome, no worries, we'll get it done. Uh, about five to ten minutes later, the rector's wife walks in and she says, what are you doing? Put the drum kit over there. That's stupid. Like, that's not going to make any sense. You need to put it over here and then it will look like this and you put these things over here and make more sense. And we were like, okay, no worries. And she walked out, and we all kind of looked at each other. We were like, what are we going to do? Well, in the end, we decided to go with the person that scared us more. Uh, so we put everything where the rector's wife wanted it to be. Uh, I, will, I will say, because she's here, Laurel is not like that. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of Laurel. Oh, we should? Yeah, OK, I should be. No worries. Uh, but not knowing who is in charge, who is in control, can make us nervous can make us worry about the situation that we're in. Now, if the great enemy of God's people in the Old Testament is Pharaoh, then a close second place, if not an equivalent, is Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon, the mighty king of the ancient Near East who ruled over one of the greatest empires the world had ever seen. He is used by God to bring about the exile upon the Israelites. Look at verse 1 with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered, literally, and the Lord gave, and I want you to make a note of that there. Under delivered, write gave. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, on the treasure, put in the treasure house of his God. Our book opens with the great disaster. Judah is defeated. Specifically, they are given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the first thing that we need to understand about this book. That there is a constant tension caused by the unequal distribution of knowledge. You see, we know that God has given his people to Nebuchadnezzar because the narrator tells us but the king thinks he's taken them himself. The actions are done by God, but the king thinks that they're his. This is also the only time in the book outside of chapter 9 that God is referred to by the title Adonai, Lord. And this is why. Well, it's because there is a tension being created between him and Nebuchadnezzar who is also referred to by the same title by Ashpenaz in verse 10. I am afraid of my Lord, Adonai, my King. And so we are led to ask the central question of the book. Mi Adonai, who is the Lord? Who is in power? Who is in control? And this question will be answered for those facing horrific persecution and exile throughout history. And for those who despair at the world that they see and the powers that they face. This book is not primarily about Daniel and his companions. This is a book about the Lord. 
As was his way, Nebuchadnezzar would deconstruct the upper echelons of the societies that he defeated, and he would do this by assimilating their leaders. We see him commence this through the recruitment of of Israelites for training, Uh, and this is where we meet our hero, the most impressive character of the Old Testament, Daniel. Daniel is a figure who stands tall in the Old Testament, but is often, I think, a difficult figure for us to put our finger on. How do we think about him? How do we categorize him? Well, I would argue that when it comes to Daniel, we see an incredible picture of the ideal Jewish hero. I don't know if you've had to deal with many people in your life who are good at everything. I think it's quite frustrating at times. Um, There was a guy in the army, uh, he did really well in academics, coming top or in the top five at least very regularly out of a cohort of 100. He ran a seven-minute 20 for the 2.4K. He was an accurate shooter. He was great in the field. This guy was my friend Jordan. I hate that guy. (laughs) You couldn't aspire to be this guy, right? He was too good. I could only aspire to kind of match him in particular things. Um, But somehow he was doing it all the time. I just couldn't keep up with him. Daniel is one of those guys. A guy that all the other characters of the Old Testament look at and think, oh man. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go through a bunch of elements of Daniel's character that I think are there, that I'm going to argue are there, uh, as we understand that he's actually kind of hard to pin into any particular or individual archetype of a character. So if you're a note taker, under Daniel in your service sheet, uh, you can just write the little title, Daniel the King. Daniel's characterization begins when Nebuchadnezzar describes who he wants to be taken into his service from amongst the conquered people. Taken from the royal family, or more literally, the seed of the kingdom and from the nobility. Daniel is established as a protagonist in the image of the kings. Echoes of the 1 Samuel descriptions of both David and Saul are heard as the appearance and skill of the captives is emphasized in their selection. When the reader looks upon Daniel, they see the same raw potential for leadership as they had previously understood to have been present in the great kings and leaders of the past. While the men are also selected from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the kings. Now, of course, there are no kind of clear statements outside of these in the text to suggest that Daniel was a direct descendant of David himself, but that's not what the text is doing. It's adding the color of king to the color palette that makes up this character. Daniel isn't a king, but he certainly looks like one. Next, Daniel the priest. When it is commanded that those selected from the exiles be without blemish, it appears that there's a religious connotation. The Hebrew word mum, blemish, appears in the Torah and in particular in Leviticus 21 with reference to who in Aaron's family may participate in the offering of bread. And again in Leviticus 22 in regards to the food itself. Describing Daniel and his companions as unblemished has the effect of incorporating the priestly themes of Leviticus into his character. This is brought into the center of the narrative when Daniel's refusal of the food allocated to the trainees. 
The root here for defile, ga'al, is used in the Hebrew Bible to describe ritual uncleanliness. Now, there are significant debates about why the food itself was considered uh, by Daniel to be defiling, as it's not really clear from the Torah why he would refuse. And so I think it's important here that, as always, we accept the text position on the situation. And from that, it's clear to me that Daniel's refusing the food on the basis of religious purity. This exemplifies a behavior that is priestly in nature and sets an example to his companions and to the reader of ritual purity in exile. Daniel is echoing the responsibility of Aaron, the priest, in Leviticus 10 to distinguish between holy and profane food. Daniel is not a priest but he certainly looks like one. Daniel the prophet. While the most clear examples of Daniel's prophetic speech come in chapter nine, the situation regarding the food is of significance. Daniel declares the defiling nature of the food in his resistance and calls the readers to abstain from the food of their oppressor. This act is prophetic in its call to proper worship and righteousness of those reading the text. The episode of testing of the diet finds its own echoes in the, in the characters of Isaiah and Ezekiel, who experience their own suffering for the purpose of communicating their message. Daniel's example demonstrates the approach of those who find themselves in persecution of choosing to follow the correct way and to trust the sovereignty of their God with the outcome. Daniel is calling Israel back to the right path, a path that the straying from had resulted in the exile in the first place. This is an act that many of the prophets have carried out before him to varying degrees of success and is the main behavior of Daniel, I think, that demonstrates his prophetic status. Daniel is not simply a prophet, but he certainly looks like one. And finally, Daniel the patriarch, the abilities given to Daniel are different to those given to his companions in verse 17. He receives all that they do, yet also receives the ability to understand dreams and visions. The placement of a Jewish hero in a Gentile court with the ability to understand and interpret dreams might sound familiar to those of you who have been here over the past three weeks. It has clear echoes of Genesis. And it's common to draw similarities between Daniel and Joseph. They're in similar situations as Jews who find themselves in a foreign land against their will, each rising to prominence in their respective Gentile kingdoms and doing so through the interpretation of the dreams and visions of the king. The similarities are such that we can only assume Daniel's being presented in this light on purpose. Daniel is the Joseph of Babylon an association which elevates him to the level of the patriarchs in the eyes of the reader. Daniel is not a patriarch, but he certainly looks like one. When we stand back and look at Daniel 1, we can see a picture of a character who is the ideal Jewish hero, not to mention that throughout the whole book, he doesn't do anything wrong, unlike other characters that we think of. He incorporates the elements of the various character types of the Hebrew Bible without being entirely captured by a single one. 
I'm not suggesting that Daniel is a priest, that he is a king, that he's a patriarch, or even that he's a prophet. But in the same way that when I look at a painting of the my hometown Cronulla, I can clearly see the blue of the sea. I can clearly see the yellow of the sand, the gray of the car park, the red and more yellow on the lifeguard shirts. Is the picture blue? No. But the blue is clearly there. When we look at Daniel, we simply see Daniel. But in his character are all of these elements that elevate him to be what I argue is one of, if not the most ideal Jewish hero of the Old Testament. Now, you're going to have to come back in future weeks for me to talk about why that's so important. But this week, the thing that I really want to get across is just how unbelievable Daniel's character is. That he's almost impossible for us to seek to be like him because he's so good. Or as I've argued before in an academic paper, Daniel is the most boring character in the Bible because he doesn't do anything wrong, so I can't relate to him. Right? This guy achieves a level of perfection and piety in his actions that is unseen anywhere else in Scripture outside of the New Testament. We've already established that the event of exile was the work of God and not Nebuchadnezzar. Now the king begins the process of assimilating Daniel and his companions as we turn to the theme that will drive the text of Daniel, sovereignty. They are given Babylonian names, Daniel and his companions, and now they are to be fed from the king's table. But Daniel refuses. Now, I've already talked about the religious implications of this. What I want to do now is look at the actions themselves and how they play out. When the officials agree to Daniel's request, they do so because something has happened. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And this is another case where um, a more literal translation is more helpful because actually God gave favor and compassion to Daniel. There's only one verb that's connected to God in Daniel 1, and it's the verb to give. I wanted you to note that in verse 2 because it comes up here again, and the direction in this chapter is always from God. It puts him in the driver's seat. God influences the disposition of Nebuchadnezzar's servants who then defy their Lord. God's servants follow his will. Nebuchadnezzar's servants disobey him, making King Neb look weak. And then a miracle happens. After 10 days, the servants of God are looking better than those who ate the full diet. And so the Babylonian way is humiliated by an act of God. Not because vegetables are better. It's a miracle, right, that they survive for 10 days on vegetables. That's the point as much as my vegetarian parents would argue otherwise, but because they are protected by the real Lord. When they are presented to Nebuchadnezzar, he finds them to be the greatest of all those being trained. And why is this? Not because of the training of the Babylonian court, but verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge 
and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel can understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God gave. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that. The final act of the chapter seals the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. He is praising the men, even though he doesn't know that to reach this point, his own servants have betrayed him, and the men themselves have been equipped by their God, the one who is truly in control, truly sovereign over this entire chapter. Do you see how clever this book is with its distribution of knowledge amongst the characters and the reader? To humiliate the kings, to show us Nebuchadnezzar's true weakness. We always take comfort from knowing that someone is in control of a situation or a, a particular thing that we're doing. A great example of that is that we get on planes because we trust and we have confidence in the pilot's training. Right? We have confidence that he's going to do what he's supposed to do, and so we feel safe doing this. Uh, parents can make us feel safe in tense situations. Uh, that's why children run behind their parents' legs right? when they're shy. Um, we feel safe and secure when we're around someone who feels like they're in control. Uh, skydiving and bungee jumping, another good example of us trusting other people. I personally think bungee jumping is more scary. Uh, when I went to do this in New Zealand, I realized that I was putting a lot of trust in the guy who was harnessing up my legs uh, before I was going to jump off and trust that my face wasn't going to hit the ground. Actually, when I got to the end, as brave as I'd like to appear, I actually turned from the ledge and said, I don't think I could do this. Um, unluckily for me, he was a New Zealander, and so he just said, too bad, man. I've hooked you up now, you're going. Um, but as I jumped, I didn't jump blindly kind of in a 50-50 what's going to happen here, right? I jumped with an understood, with a faith that had eyes, right? I, un I knew the rope was going to carry me. I had to trust that the rope was going to help me. And luckily for me, but not necessarily for all of you, it did. For those being persecuted under Antiochus, for those under the Roman rule in the time of Jesus, for Christians facing a world that can seem so chaotic today in the face of rising leaders who seem all-powerful, in the face of situations that seem out of control, Daniel begins to establish its message of reassurance that in the midst of all that is happening, there is one person in control who is sovereign over all that is going on and who is using the events for their own purposes, and that is God. Everything in this book over the next month is about demonstrating this message and calling on us to respond in faithful service. This chapter is an introduction that sets up how we are to understand what comes next in the book. And so as you read, I want you to keep these two things in mind that I've introduced now. I've set you up now to start reading the book. First, how is the sovereignty of God over the kings being demonstrated in the text? How are they being humiliated? Where's the knowledge being distributed? And how, do we, how are we to respond to that? And then the other thing I want you to start noticing is, how is Daniel's character being developed? But like I said, I'll explain why that's so important as we get closer to the visions. For now, I just want you to be impressed by him. Being faithful to your beliefs when under pressure is a hard thing. 
It is something only achievable for those who are truly convicted by who their God is and how he acts in the world. Standing for your faith at work with your family, making life choices that come at real expense to yourself, that only comes through true conviction in this truth. It doesn't come from any kind of convincing message that anyone can give, any firm preacher who tells you that you need to do these certain things, that might motivate you for a brief period of time, but certainly not for long. And so I won't be telling you to do things in this series. I'll be calling on you to respond to what you're reading and to who our God is. For now we see a God who stands above a king who thinks he is great. And instead this God works for the glory and good of his people, even in the darkest place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way in which you have worked in Babylon, the way in which you have worked in Jerusalem, in Rome, and now, Lord, we we thank you for the way that you work in Sydney. We pray, Lord, that we would see your sovereignty and we would turn in trust, that we do not walk in a blind faith, but a faith that is based on the evidence of who you are and what you have done. And we pray, Lord, that each day you convict us more, giving us courage and faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.